What's shaking, cats and kittens? Rob Lee here for this month's presenting sponsor, Night Owl Gallery. Night Owl Gallery is an intimate, artist-run exhibition space showcasing the original paintings and fine art prints of Beth Ann Wilson. Also, it features curated goods from local artists and craftsmen. You'll be sure to find one-of-a-kind gifts, handcrafted jewelry, home decor items, along with a few vintage treasures. Located in the rear of 248 South Conklin Street in Highlandtown, across from the Sally O's, Night Owl Gallery is a unique space that brings together Wilson's love of the arts, community, and culture. Additionally, Night Owl Gallery hosts an array of arts and crafts workshops throughout the year and participates in community events, many of which are free and open to the public. So in this ever-changing world, safety is their priority. So feel free to join them and hit them up online at www.nightowl.gallery. Tell them Rob Lee sent you. Welcome to Getting to the Truth in This Art. I am your host, Rob Lee. And my next guest is a Baltimore-based artist who captures everyday scenes of the African diaspora. We have Schroeder Cherry. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's good to be here. Yes. Um, thank you for, for making the time and, 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 and coming to this, this lovely little, little thing we call Getting to the Truth in This Art. So, uh, <laughs> so as is custom, um, I'd like to ask um, my guests like what their background is creatively. So I won't make anything different here. Uh, what is your background? What is your your creative interest and your artistic background? Okay. Um, well, I would. I am what you would call an arts kid. I grew up playing with uh, crayons. Those were my favorite toys. I was always drawing and, and sketching. I also played with marbles and puppets. Um, in high school, I had a chance to study art, you know, in a more formal, in a more formal way. I was a part of the, what they called workshops for careers in the arts. And that's the precursor to what is now the Duke Ellington School in Washington, D.C. Before the school, there were um, a group of visionaries, primarily Peggy Cooper Capritz and Mike Malone. Um, Mike was from Howard University and Peggy was working, working in the law school uh, GW. They put together this amazing program that drew kids from all over DC and, and introduced them to the performing and visual arts. So I was exposed to that early on. That's fantastic. Um, getting in there early. I, I don't think I was, it may have been one or once or twice that I've actually said this on this what 150th episode i suppose that um i was kind of in one of those spots like super young and kind of being exposed to just different things early um artistically and it, it was like drawing manuals and hey here's this book here's these color pencils here's a crayons i was right. like oh this is great and having more of an interest in it i had a few toys but having more of an interest in that area and um worked on a few murals as a, as a kid and ruined my uh, glasses so my parents were not happy about that and uh <laughs> but i did a few a few different things and so it's really good to hear that it was one of those really early early uh starts for you were you good at coloring books i i See, was here's, not here's the thing I, i'm an iconoclast with coloring books <laughs> here's the thing i'm an iconoclast i i only drew outside of the lines okay yeah we were in the same class i i could not stick within those lines and now as, a, as an adult, looking back at those books, I realized how badly designed they were for kids, period. The spaces yeah. were small, the lines were just not designed for a kid's hand or imagination. Um, but later there was a crop of books that came out, the anti-coloring book, which, is, which basically eliminates the lines. So you've got all this space on a page to, to, 
to um, express your imagination there. And I thought, well, this is what I should have had as a kid. Yeah, I, I like I get this. I get. This. Yeah. The, the the one thing I, I did do and it kind of showed because um, because mostly it was color pencils for me. Um, I uh, it, it was weird. Like you have a teacher that really overzealous and they're like, hey, uh, we see that you did something creatively. So I would draw this comic, the whole thing, inking, penciling, the whole thing and doing all the coloring. I was like, this is not colored well. And I was working <laughs> on it. I was working on it. I, I would always rush through. Uh, my test so I can work on my comic book or whatever drawing I was doing. And I think the teacher came over there and this is after a week that I had a test and I had this really cool drawing of like Wolverine from the X-Men. And I remember she threw it away and I was like, I'm mad right now. So I'm obviously very protective of this comic that I'm working on. This is my baby. <laughs> so she saw it and she was like, Oh my gosh. And she got it laminated and it became like a big thing around my middle school. And uh, I still actually have it to this day. It was like my, one of my failed dreams of being a comic book guy. I might go back into it though. Okay. Uh, so you, you touched on crayons, marbles, puppets. Uh, describe some of those initial sources of inspiration for, for how you kind of use some of those, those implements. Initial, you mean influences? Uh, yes. I was I was always drawn to um, pictures, I guess. I, I I had a cousin who was interested in cars and, you know, friends who were interested in cars. And I thought, well, to be a really to be your true little boy, I should be interested in cars. I just couldn't. Um, it, I, it just didn't hold my interest. But I could really get excited about big pictures or, or photographs of foreign places. I, um, I actually went out and bought a car set because Plastic model cars were popular when I was a kid. So I went out and bought a car set. Man, I opened that car set and the colors were just so ugly. I was depressed. I mean, it was it was just this ugly gray green thing made out of plastic without these parts <laughs> that you had to like um, break apart and then put together. I thought, okay, I really do not like this. These colors are just bad. <laughs> They're just bad. Um, so I was always influenced by, by things that are around me. Um, growing up in DC, I was also had access to museums and they were free because Smithsonian you know, was a federal museum. Uh, I found myself wandering around Smithsonian, even as a kid. I, I, I tended to wander when I was a kid in DC. So I would, um, without telling my parents, I would get on the bus and travel to other parts of the city, yeah. just kind of walk around in, into other neighborhoods. And one day I found myself down on the mall and I, I was in what I what I now know is the National Gallery of Art, um, just kind of walking around the halls and, and thinking, wow, this is this is a great place. So that was, those are my those are my early influences there. Yeah. Tra traveling, seeing seeing the, the world, traveling locally, obviously, but, but seeing the world and like recognizing like I don't, I don't like that color. I, I prefer better colors. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. And I've been a wanderer all my life, even as an adult, I'm a wanderer. I, I enjoy traveling and, and being exposed to other cultures. And when I go to other cultures as an adult, I'm really intrigued by the craftspeople, mm -hmm. um, particularly woodworkers, textile craftspeople and ceramics people. Although I'm not thrilled with ceramics myself, I don't think I have the temperament to deal with the mud and the clay and the kiln and waiting for, to, to see what it's going to look like. I'm more of a, an immediate type person. So I like to, um, work in wood or uh, in colors on wood. Um, so it's, it's more immediate to me. So I'm really intrigued by how artists around the world handle those different types of forms. So 
I, I, I had a course at, at, at the illustrious Morgan State University uh, on, on African diaspora, and you hear it mentioned in, in without it becoming a buzzword. I want to get your 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 take on it, and and why is it important to capture like scenes of the African diaspora? I didn't really approach it in terms of urgency or immediacy. It's just something that I took on as normal. But we do hear a lot about diaspora now. And diaspora is simply a word that means spread out. That's all it is. (laughs) So when you say African diaspora, you're talking about African people who just by any means of travel went to other parts of the world. That's what we're saying. That's what it is. Um, Interestingly enough, before African diaspora became uh, popular, Jewish diaspora was was the term that was used a lot. And there was some... I understand there was some controversy when African-Americans started using African diaspora because Jewish people thought that they owned that word. And you had some black scholars that said, no, you don't own the word diaspora. <laughs> this is ours. Like, it is not. <laughs> you don't own the word diaspora. So and now we hear it. We hear it a lot. It's just part of our it's a part of our culture. Um, but essentially it means spread out. That's all it is. And in that element and just just everyday scenes is like I, I remember having this um this 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 interview with uh, Thomas James a while back. And it was it was about like that representation component or what have you. And it's like, why you know, going back to it, it's like, why is this important? It's important because it captures a real life situation for for, for black people, for, for people right. like like you and I that. A lot of times, and when he kind of broke down the numbers of curators and, and how that factors into what art is being seen and displayed and all of that, it's like, that's why it's important. <laughs> yeah, you, t- you, have to, you have to look at who's guarding the cultural gates and, and you have to look at where the cultural gates exist. Right now, because we have such modern forms of technology, it's nothing to be able to connect with people immediately. But let's say 30 years ago, we didn't hear a lot about black people from Britain. We didn't see a lot of them on television. So when I actually went to London or when I went to Amsterdam and I saw all these people of color walking in the streets, I was blown away. I said, I don't see this on my television. Why don't I know that people from Suriname are in Holland? Because, you know, the Dutch people colonized other parts of the world and those folks come back to to where they were um, where they were exposed. So I thought, okay, this is something that I would like to just to express because I'm seeing it. I'm sure somebody else is seeing it. So let me just include it as part of my own experiences. So I'm not as shocked now when I go to, let's say, European countries and see people of color walking in the streets because I'm thinking, okay, historically, yes, they got here. Train, you know, train, plane, ship, however they travel, they got here. And that should not be abnormal in terms of in terms of a visual vocabulary this is something that i should be able to look at and say okay yes i understand this 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 is norm what is not normal is to see let's say a television series that's supposed to be contemporary and you see no people of color that that should not be normal anymore (laughs) yeah yeah it's like i you mentioned like Amsterdam. I, I what is it? Uh, Coruscant, what have you? I, I always look back at. Um, I, I'm a baseball fan, and I would look back at the Atlanta Braves, and it's like Andrew Jones looks like a black dude, and it's like, oh, he's from Curacao. I was like, ah. oh. and and you know, as a kid, like you know, this is we're, we're talking like '96, '97. I'm like, 
what where what which right. part of america is that you know and or which part of africa is that and now learning about the place because if i don't know a place i need to learn some more about it and get an idea of where are black people at and i think having work that is reflective of that but in a normal sort of way is, is important mm-hmm. and um yeah I, I outside of this i do a movie review podcast and uh I was joking about it. I ended up watching the movie Scream and looking at it like for reviews, this 25th anniversary. And one of the observations I took down was like, this is a very white movie. And, and it's this thing of like, <laughs> can this be reshot or can this be redone right now? And you have to take that inventory right now. But if that movie, being that it's 25 years old, was done now, you, you got to have a few different people or types represented for it to feel like it, it's, it's contemporary. It's modern. Sure. Sure. Uh, describe the barbershop series, and why did you create the series? And and, and what are some of the some of the um, techniques, or uh, what are some of the techniques you utilize to bring the series together? Barbershop series started on a dare. I was actually in the gym minding my own business. I was shaving my head, and this guy, this tall guy, like six foot three, brother, comes behind me and says, "What do you know about shaving heads?" I'm saying like, I shave my head every other day. What's with you and who are you? Turns out he owns a barbershop. Um, so we got to talking and said, well, Matt, can I, uh, can I come into your shop and do some sketches? Cause I would like to, I'd like to like capture some scenes of the barbershop. So he let me come in and I spent some time in his shop taking sketches, uh, doing some photographs and I started painting. And I thought maybe I'd just do a couple of barbershop paintings, but I got into it. And every time I went back to the shop, I got another idea for for a piece. So it became a series. And over time, I realized all of my images were coming from this one barbershop. I need to branch out. Let me try to try another shop. So I introduced myself to over a period of two years. I I ended, ended up introducing myself to seven or eight different barbershops mostly in Maryland, one in DC. Um, I would go in and say, Hey, I'm an artist. I'm working on a series. Uh, can I take some images from your space? And you know, I'll, I'll give you some images if you let me do this. So I am now working on, I have gotten just before COVID when everything shut down, I couldn't go back into the barbershops because everything was closed. I was on painting number 68. Wow. There are 68 pieces in the barbershop series right now. And my work is primarily acrylic with objects on wood. I used to paint on canvas, but I got to the point where I was abusing the canvas so badly. I was cutting and burning and shaping and whatnot. I thought I need a stronger, a stronger foundation. So I thought, well, let me try wood. And I still consider myself a painter, not a sculptor per se, although I am shaping the wood, but I, I use the wood like, like a collagist would use paper. Mm-hmm. Rather, if you can imagine holding a piece of paper and cutting the edges and shaping it with scissors, I'm taking wood and cutting and shaping it with power tools. Gotcha. That's basically what I'm doing. And I'm, I'm um, gouging into it and I'm painting it and I'm adding materials. I'm stitching into the wood, which is something I really like because I'm stitching keys and other objects into the wood just as part of the narrative. And every time I use a key or a clock or um, a combination lock or, or a, another kind of key or lock, it adds to the narrative in a, in a particular way. So at this point, people have started giving me keys. 
You know, everybody I know has got a key. They've had it for more than a year and they don't know what it belongs to. You don't want to give this key up. It's like I've had this key for 10 years. One day I'm going to figure out what it opens up to. So um, people have started actually giving me keys and those have become a part of my material along with the paint and the line drawings. So that's that's interesting. I was thinking like it would be that one instance where someone's like, I gave away a key. I know what it's for now. Oh no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, where's your art? <laughs> yeah, fortunately that has not yet happened. Um, but you know, thanks to technology, I've actually on a couple of occasions had people that I do not know from New Orleans and someone else from someone else from Delaware, someone else from Chicago. They said, Hey, I've seen your work on Facebook. Uh, do you have, do, what is your mailing address? I'd like to send you a package. And okay. I, I'm not, I'm not um, fearful that someone's going to send me a bomb or anything. So I send them the address so they can send this thing. And I've gotten, actually I've gotten packages of keys. Oh. People just like sent me keys. I also have a former colleague who now works. I, I guess I should not say where she works, but she um, oversees a series of libraries and they were changing locks on all the buildings. And she said, well, I've got this, my janitor collect, collected all these keys. and He's going to throw them out. Would you like to have them? I said, yeah, send them on. Just give me these keys. <laughs> like a, a boatload of keys uh, just for that instance. The, the key, the key master. Another, and um, what I learned from the barbershops is barbershops are pretty consistent in what they have, but every shop is different. You've got to have the chair. You've got to have the barber. You've got to have a customer. You've got to have the razors. You've got to have the hair products. You've got to have all that stuff. But the way that that appears in every shop is very different. And that's what I appreciated in spending some time. It was also pushing the boundaries for me because I did not spend a lot of time in barbershops when I was a kid. I, I didn't have that kind of hair and my family just kind of cut my hair with scissors or you know a razor. But I didn't spend a lot of time in the barbershop. So I can't I can't talk about you know memories of going to the barbershop with my dad and being surrounded by other men in the neighborhood. I didn't have that. But in sitting in that environment as an adult, I got it. I understood it because the first guy that let me sit into a shop is very much a part of his community. Um, although his shop is in Baltimore, he's originally from New York. So he's a transplant, but his shop is, is really rooted in his community. And as I sat and watched him operate and also his, he has, there were three other chairs in that shop. So I watched those barbers work with their clientele as well. They knew their customers. Now, interestingly enough, they may not know their customers by name, but they know them in other ways. Mm -hmm. um, they know all about their background. They know who's dating who, who's married to who, who's got kids, you know, whose kids are going to graduate, whose kids are go you know, going off to college. They know all this information, but they may not know them by name. Yeah. They also know them by heads. Yes. So I can go back and say, you know, that guy whose head was kind of like at this angle. And, oh, yeah, yeah, I know him. He comes on a Saturday, usually at three o'clock. <laughs> that's funny. That's funny. That's that's the thing. That's, that's important. Like, um, I, I know when I go there, um, and I go to my barber and he's like, look, man. Why to do this with your hair moving forward? I don't know about this. It's like it's a, it's a consultation thing, and I'm like, look, man, this this is a 20 minute haircut. Just just go down to a nun. Just make I'm I'm not quite ready to shave it yet. I just go down really low. Yeah, I've had that. I've had that experience too. In fact, one of my one of my friends is funny. He said, "Look, stop looking like bozo. Just go ahead and shave your entire head." <laughs> 
I, I can't do it. I mean, I'm trying to keep the beard in and I already got, I already was told I have like daddy or uncle energy. And it's like, I don't have a kid. I'm, I, I'm barely an uncle. I, I don't know. <laughs> uh, so, I read that your work and you, you touched on it actually is mixed media is, is a component. If, if someone were to call it that mixed media assemblage right. um, and puppetry, which part do you enjoy, enjoy doing the most? And I remember you mentioning the stitching piece, but <laughs> which part of that process of any of your processes do you enjoy doing the most? You know, I, I don't know that I can think of them as most because um, they're both a part of a part of who I am. I wouldn't do one without the other. Okay. Um, there is some transferable technique that goes between the, the art making, the assemblage and the puppetry, because when you're when you're constructing the puppet, you're still dealing with line, color, form, shape. And you're also in my case, I'm also sculpting. Um, when I'm dealing with my artwork with the assemblages, I'm still dealing with line, form, shape, color, and I'm also uh, creating forms. So mm, I wouldn't choose one over the other. Um, now I can say that the effects are very different because with puppetry, you, you're performing with an audience. And I do appreciate that. I appreciate seeing how puppets bring out different things in people in their, um, particularly in the audience, everyone responds to a puppet very differently. And so it's interesting me just, just to watch, just yeah. watch that dynamic. Cause when I perform, I'm, I'm in full view, but I'm just in all black. So the puppet actually interacts with whoever's there. And you forget me, the puppet actually takes on their own characteristics. So you get a lot of information from people with a puppet. Uh, uh, yes. <laughs> you, can learn, you can learn some things about people with a puppet. <laughs> I mean, my, 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 partner, my, my, my partner, she is afraid of puppets. So that's one thing. And that, then, you know uh, what? That's interesting because we recently did a film shoot with a woman who owned a, um, a production company and she had, and we had to go to film a puppet show. This is a 30 minute puppet show. And I'm operating eight. And I'm, about, I'm operating 10 different puppets in the show. She admitted from the very beginning that she was terrified of puppets since the very beginning, since early childhood, she was yeah. puppets. And I said, okay, well, I'm not going to, I'm not going to push your boundaries here, but I do have a pup that you might be comfortable with. You know, it's Mr. Zeke, he's an older guy, dark skin, white hair, slow talking, just kind of really friendly. Hey, darling, how you doing? <laughs> I'm really happy to be here with you today. We're going to do a show. This woman ended up kissing Mr. Zeke by the end, we, by the time we finished <laughs> She gave him a kiss. Now she did give him a kiss and like she freaked out afterwards, but we got it on camera. She kissed, she kissed Mr. Zeke. That's fantastic. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm a little bit of a troll. So I'm like, Hey, remember uh tales from the hood? It's just like, don't you dare. <laughs> uh, you don't troll just a little bit. And uh, <laughs> what I do. Um, so you mentioned traveling um, is, is a thing for you. It's important. And I, and I enjoy traveling as well. Get dipped in a different culture and you learn something. And I think that's what's really important. Um, do, do Are there some destinations that come to mind when you think of um, places that had a profound uh, impact on you creatively? Creatively, um, I would say Haiti and West Africa. In West Africa, Mali, I was really drawn to... Um, the rustic nature, the desert, and the textiles. Um, and also, they, uh, Mali has a very strong culture in puppetry. So on one of my trips, I went specifically to look for puppets in Mali and learned a lot about how Africans handle puppetry. It's very different from, from European puppetry. So I really appreciated that. 
and incorporated some of those techniques in how I perform. It just, it just kind of freed me up to think about how you work a puppet with an, with an audience. Because now, I, although I don't do this particular example, um, there, there used to be boys clubs in West Africa. And as part of their service to the community, when they weren't helping with the harvest, they would put on puppet shows. And oh, wow. in, in, in the Niger area, um, these puppet shows would, ha would take place on the river in a canoe. So the canoe itself would be sculpted in such a way that the back of the puppet would be an ox. These guys would be under the ox and they would operate these puppets from the back of the ox or through the, through the back of the ox on a canoe in the river. Oh, wow. I was just blown away with yeah. that whole concept. So the audience is standing on the, on the banks of the river watching and usually it happens late afternoon or in the dark. Um, so all of this mystery happens because of, because of the lighting. At the same time, you have chanters uh, and drummers um, and and maybe a storyteller all all working together in collaboration to this to this performance. And that, that just really, really excited me in terms of possibilities of puppetry. That's that's great. It you know what I want before we forget about yeah. uh, barbershops, I wanted to, to add one thing that I learned in my research. Um, I was intrigued by how barbers became a, a profession in America. And it turns out that it started during the colonial period um, oh. when white men of means wanted to imitate European aristocracy. They needed to have a man in waiting who would who would handle their hair and their face. So they allowed enslaved black men to shave their face and their head. And these men <laughs> took that and ran with it as a profession. They became um, within that system, they became rather elite because they had access to things that other black people didn't have access to, i.e. men of wealth um, sitting in this environment, talking to each other. They learned a lot of information just by by eavesdropping on conversations. At the same time, these guys are having a razor to their throat and to their head, shaving their head and their faces. Later on, freed black men took that took on barbering as a profession because white males thought it was beneath them to cut somebody else's hair. So they ran with it and it became a profession. Wow. I, I had no idea of that. So I feel like I've just obviously I've learned a lot so far, but I've learned that. And that's that's great. I'm going to throw that out in the barbershop one day. It's like, yeah, man, y'all were kings, man. Just, <laughs> oh, brother, yeah, pass that along in it. There's the they were, they were one of their earliest professions of, of black people in, in the U.S. One of the earliest, wow. um, what I want to say, unions, oh, barber unions. We, we know hair. Um, that's, that's the thing. I mean, that's in, entrenched there, like legitimately, like stamped, approved. Uh, now, here's the last question I have before I get into shameless plugs. Yeah, I, I don't hold people too long. It's just like, hey, wham, bam, here's your 30 minutes. Let's get it in. Uh, <laughs> uh, I read that the, the story pertaining to individual pieces is, is ending. What's one thing or a few things that you want the audience to take away from your work as an artist, like your, your body of work as an artist thus far? My works are what I call open-ended narratives and they're open-ended because there's never one story. Um, I came across a phrase a long time ago that I like, and it's Allah delights in many kinds of truth and varying degrees of truth, but even Allah does not like the entire truth. So to me, that means there's never one story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So when people are looking at my work, um, many times if they don't know who I am, I like to eavesdrop before they find out who I am and listen in on conversations because 
um, if they don't know the artists around, you can get some unfiltered feedback. And that's really great. Yes. Uh, I think one of the more precious comments I gotten was two teenage girls who were looking at a, a barbershop piece and they said, that's really strange, but it's cute. <laughs> it's almost like that that line on the back of the movies is like strange but cute yeah like, it's I'm, like I'm yeah that's, that's really strange and i knew that in her vocabulary that meant this is a really nice piece but it's it's unusual it's not something she's seen before so to answer your question i would i would invite people to have what i call a slow look look at the pieces and spend some time with it and just see what it says to you mm. When I have these eavesdropping sessions, um, what I come up with has been far richer than what I had in mind in the first place. And I thought, okay, this is this is fodder for the next piece. (laughs) I can take that idea and stretch it and go somewhere else with it. So thank you for that input. That's fantastic. It's 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 one of those things that it's it's important because I've interviewed a fair amount of like artists and they'll say, oh, I'm never around. I'm never around to know. It's like that. Does does that matter to you or. You know, and, and that's the thing, but being able to get that kind of take take the look this way, take t- take a slower look at it and really be able to appreciate and get that, be, you know, uh, immersed in it and mm-hmm. and then kind of go from there. Like uh, I've, I remember going to the Bright exhibit and I, I, I think I went two or three times and I went with different people each time and I was just appreciating different pieces, you know, each time. And generally it's like, oh, let me just do this pass real quick and absorb it that way and it's like no 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 this is not fast food this art's not fast food you have right. to, this is a this is a full course meal yeah and you gotta be able yeah, to that's a good, yeah that's a good analogy yeah. that's a good analogy so that's all the questions that i have but what i would like to invite for you is the opportunity to shamelessly plug plug whatever your social media all of that stuff website sure. whatever i'm on facebook uh, the name is schroeder cherry s-c-h-r-o-e-d-e-r cherry just like the tree um, I'm also on Instagram, so hit me up, take a look. Um, I also have a portfolio on what's called Baker Artists Portfolio. So you can go to that and see um, a boatload of, of works, both puppets and assemblages. So um, if you see something that you like, or even if you don't like it, uh, contact me, let me know. I don't really care if you don't like it. Let's have a conversation. What, what, uh, what about it intrigues you? <laughs> yeah, that, that's that's big. That's big. Um, it's um, it's big to have that feedback. Feedback is important. Um, and it's like, yeah, let's, let's let's have a discourse around this. I don't like it. Hard stop. It's like, no, let's have a discourse. Tell me more. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So thank you so much. This has been a treat. Um, and yeah, I'm do my sign off. Thank you, Rob. Yeah, totally. So for Schroeder Cherry, I'm Rob Lee, saying that there's art in and around Baltimore. You just got to look for it. 